This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. I like to pretend that's for me. No, <laughs> Carl is here too. Um, hello and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Uh, there's quite a few of you. Thank you for coming out on this horribly rainy night. Um, this is the best place to be, obviously. Um, thanks for coming to this event, which is sponsored by The Skinny. Uh, so a huge thank you to them for making this happen today. Um, I'm Heather Parry, and I'm thrilled, excited, and quite frankly, a wee bit intimidated to be here today with the hugely accomplished and inimitable Akala. Where to start? Oh, wow! I feel like that's going to keep happening. <laughs> um, where to start? <laughs> well, where to start? Um, not content with winning a mobile award for best hip-hop act at age 22, having a hugely successful music career, having not one but a series of iconic Fire in the Booth appearances, winning a BAFTA, being co-founder of the Hip-Hop Shakespeare Company, touring with the likes of Nas and Damien Marley, being the voice of reason across political programming on all channels, and being awarded two... Don't know about that one. <laughs> Two honorary doctorates, yeah, now I so, think. Yeah. Um, Akala is now also a best-selling author with his brilliant and searing first book, Natives, Race and Class in the Ruins of Empire. Um, we've done it, but we'll do it again. Please join me in giving a huge welcome to <laughs> Dr. Dr. Akala. That part of the show always has to be one of the most embarrassing things in the world. <laughs> you love it. No, no, I, honestly, we were, I was discussing this with someone yesterday, and I think this is the difference between, one of the big cultural differences between British people and Americans, right? Because I, I was in the States till yesterday. And, and, and you just can't help it. It's our natural inclination to get embarrassed when people say good things about you. Whereas an American would be like, yeah, that's me, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's not a disrespect to them. It's just one of those things you can't help but feel a little bit like, mm. where, where do I look? Someone's being nice, but anyway. Um, just a wee bit of housekeeping before we start. Um, a wee reminder to keep your phones off. Um, if you would like to tweet about the event, and I'm sure you will, um, we'll be having a 20-minute Q&A um, after the discussion, so please uh, wait until the house lights are up to get your phones out for that one. Um, and then you can tweet away to your heart's content. And also get your questions ready, because they better be good. Um, Akala, I believe you're going to start us off with a little reading. I am, yeah. I'm going I'm to read for about 10 minutes just from the beginning of the book. Uh, first chapter, which was called Born in the 80s. Shout out to anyone else who was born in the 1980s. And big shouts to anyone who was born before the 1980s. <laughs> which seems to be the majority of the audience. I'm only playing. Listen, uh, the greys are coming. My little brother's 17. I've accepted I'm... I, I know I'm supposed to start reading, but I've accepted I'm not young anymore. You know when you know you're not young? My, my little brother was born when I was 17, and he's kind of like my child, and he... Become a teenager recently. This is just to show the older people I'm not making fun of you, by the way. And, I, and, and they were going to the cinema about two years ago. This is when I knew it was changing. And I wanted to go to the cinema with them, and they was like, nah, you're all right. And I, <laughs> and I was like, 
cool, I'm not the cool older brother no more. I'm, I'm one of the older people, safe. Anyway, so. Yeah. <laughs> this part isn't that funny, so never mind. <laughs> it's all good. Um, I was born in the 1980s, and I grew up in the cliched, single-parent, working-class family. We often depended on state benefits. We lived in a council house. I ate free school meals. I'm the child of a British Caribbean father and a Scottish English mother. My teenage parents were never married, and they separated before I was born. My dad spent a portion of his childhood in and out of the care system, and my mum was pretty much disowned by our father for getting with a nignog. The first time I saw someone being stabbed, I was 12, maybe 13. The same year, I was searched by the police for the first time. I first smoked weed when I was nine, and many of my uncles, meaning biological uncles as well as family friends, went to prison. My upbringing was, on the face of it, typical of those of my peers who've ended up meeting an early death or have spent much of their adult lives in and out of prison. I was born in Crawley, West Sussex, but moved to Camden in northwest London before I had formed any concrete memories and I spent my childhood and teenage years living there. Camden is home to 130 languages and about as wide a divide between rich and poor as anywhere in the country. I went to school with the children of lords and ladies, millionaires, refugees, children clearly suffering from malnourishment and young boys selling drugs for their fathers. If there is anywhere in Britain that could serve as a petri dish for examining race, class and culture, Camden would be that place. I was born in the 1980s in the mother country of the British Commonwealth, the seat of the first truly global empire, the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution and the epicenter of global finance. What does this mean? What are the social and historical forces that even allowed my parents to meet? My father is the British porn child of two African Jamaican migrant workers who came to the mother country as part of the Windrush generation. My mother was an army child, born in Germany, spending her infant years in Hong Kong and moving to the small town in which I was born in her early teens. In my parents' meeting are untold histories of imperial conquest, macroeconomic change, slave revolts, decolonization, and worker struggles. I was born poor, by Western standards at least. I was born poor and racialized as black, despite my white mother, in perhaps the most tumultuous decade of Britain's domestic racial history. I was born in the 1980s, back before mixed-race children had become an acceptable fashion accessory. A nurse in the hospital promised to give my white mother nigger blood when she needed a transfusion after giving birth. Yes, the 1980s was a decade bereft of political correctness. The 1980s was also the decade of Thatcherite, Reaganite ascendancy. The golden age of capitalism had ended in 1973, and the 80s saw the rollback of the post-war welfare state, increased sell-off of public assets, and the embrace of an individualistic, self-made logic by the very generation that had become wealthy with the support of free universities and cheap council houses and literally been kept alive by the newly constructed National Health Service. The decade also saw the most powerful military machine ever assembled spun into existential crisis by the enormous threat posed by the potential of a socialist revolution on the tiny Caribbean island of Grenada. 
and the self-appointed captains of global democracy could be found back in genocidal regimes from Nicaragua to South Africa. Though that could have been any decade, really. It was the decade Thomas Sankara was killed, the Berlin Wall fell, Michael Jackson started to turn white, and the MOVE movement was bombed from the sky. The 1980s were fairly eventful, to say the least. For Black Britain, the decade began with the New Cross Fire slash massacre of 1981, a suspected racist arson attack at 439 New Cross Road, where Yvonne Ruddock was celebrating her 16th birthday party. 13 of the partygoers burned to death, including the birthday girl, and one of the survivors also later committed suicide. Many of the families of the dead have maintained to this day that A, it was an arson attack, and B, that the police bungled the investigation and treated the families of the dead like suspects instead of victims. The community's suspicion that it was an arson attack was perfectly reasonable, given that it came in the wake of a string of such racist arson attacks in that area of southeast London. The Prime Minister did not even bother to offer condolences to what were apparently British children and their families. Of course, Thatcher could not, in her heart of hearts, express sympathy for black British children while supporting an apartheid government rooted in the idea that black people were subhuman. So at least, to her credit, she was consistent. <laughs> there certainly was not going to be a minute's silence, and most of Britain is completely unaware it even happened, despite New Cross being one of the single largest losses of life in post-war Britain. The same year also saw the passing of the British Nationality Act, the last of a series of acts that were passed from 1962 onwards and whose racialized motivations were barely disguised. British Caribbeans had come to learn that they were indeed second-class citizens, as many had long suspected, but they were not of a mood to keep quiet and put their heads down about it. New Cross led to the largest demonstration by black people in British history. 20,000 people marched on Parliament on a working weekday and foretold of the harsh realities of the decade to come. Blood agaron if justice na come, was the chant. It was to prove prophetic. Thank you. Um, thanks, that was fantastic. And I think gives you a real insight into your brilliant mix of um, anecdote and historical narrative. Yeah. Um, you really all should buy this book, and you can do so uh, <laughs> after the event, where we'll be in the signing tent so you can get your book signed and have a little chat with the Carla. But to dig in, um, this book feels like uh, the culmination of decades of education um, and research and experience of these issues. Um, can you tell us a little bit about when your education in the contradictions and complexities of race and class in the UK began? Um, yeah, really, two kind of incidents, really. Um, one, I write about this in the book, there's a chapter called The Day I Realised My Mum Was White. Because believe it or not, I had no idea, right? I'm, I'm a child, she's just my mum, right? Um, and so I went to school one day, um, and a boy at school called me a Chinese black nigger bastard. Which, come on, you can laugh, it's okay. Right? <laughs> as far as racial insults go, 10 out of 10 for originality, right? Because I have never heard that one before. And, and, and the truth is, if, for those who don't know, I mean, we have lots of Chinese people in Jamaica, and actually my, so my great-grandmother kind of looks like she's mixed with black and Chinese, whereas my grandmother just looks straight West African. So there probably is some Chinese ancestry in there. So ironically, the, 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 the kid, or more likely his parents, um, who probably don't know the history of Jamaica, were hinting on, on something, because I did 
I had different features to what I have now when I was younger. Um, but the point was, I came home and I was like, Mum, and I went to say, Mum, the white boy said. And then I was like, but hold on a minute, Mum, you're one of them. Um, and I was like, Mum, you're white, aren't you? And, and she said, no, I'm German, they're English. Um, <laughs> as if there's never been any racism in Germany. Um, but the point was, she wanted, me to, she wanted me to feel comfortable. She could, she could have just said, I'm Scottish, they're English, but, but she didn't think of that. Um, and, and so she, she was like, I'm German, they're English, and she tried to make that separation so I'd, I'd feel comfortable. But obviously, from that happened, my mum realised, well, I know what I've been through. I, I, I make the point about the, the 1980s. A lot of people will forget what it was like for white women who decided to get with black guys in the 80s. My mum got spat at, she got chased by the NF, she got called nigger lover more times than she could remember. It wasn't like, a lot of people complain about political correctness now. If you were alive in the 80s, you'll remember, or 70s even, you, you'd be like, well, political, it's not such a bad thing that bigots have to show up sometimes. <laughs> um, it's not the end of the world, you know, you pay a price for civility. But, um, so she knew some of these issues would come up. And in fact, one of the reasons she left West Sussex and came to London was because she felt that being in a more multi-ethnic city would, would give her a, a, a chances to educate her children in a particular way and, 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 and to get away from some of the, the small-town bigotry. And, and in a way, it very much did. Camden is, is... You go there now and you think, this is remarkable. A lot of people I bring to London, they say, how have these people worked this all out? So on the face of it, London is a very successful multi-ethnic society, but it was that incident, and, and my granddad who told me I should paint myself white because I was dirty. Um, between those two, I sort of was like, my granddad's the English one, don't worry. Um, <laughs> not, not that Scotland's free of problems, but, um, but, but that's, uh, that's one of the contradictions in the book as well. But, but I remember when, when he said that, and it was interesting because I was maybe five or six, and I remember feeling sorry for him. I, I didn't actually feel, I felt a little bit of shame, but I felt like, what an idiot. The kind of thing, and I, I was very conscious even at that age that that was a really stupid and ignorant thing for, for an adult to say. You and didn't he, have any anger towards him? No, I, w I was angry, I was angry, yeah. But, but there were things that had happened later in life that were more, I was five or six, mm. do you know what I mean? So it was more like, it, more slightly upset, but I just thought, wow, how stupid are you kind of thing. Mm. But, I, I, but I think those, those two little, even though they were, they were only comments, it's weird because I realised me and my mum were different. Mm -hmm. And from that day on when I, when I was five, or at least in this society, we would be, we'd be perceived differently. And, and from, that, from that day on, really, our relationship became a white mother who had black children, not just a mother and a child. And, and my mum, to her credit, did her best to try and engage with that. She sent us to Pan-African Saturday School so we could know ourselves. She, she tried to give us some sort of coherent sense of, of black culture. Um, and which, when you look at how my siblings have turned out, you know, my, my older sister, I'm sure you all know, my next sister down is a professional stunt woman who's, you know, just done, just working on Game of Thrones last week. She was working on James Bond before that. You know, my, my youngest brother's just got 10 GCSEs. We grew up on free school meals. 70% of kids on free school meals don't get five GCSEs. So, in a way, I think my mum's my decision to give us a really strong black identity, even though we're mixed, had a positive impact on how we could navigate um, some of the challenges we faced growing up in London, but it really began then. Um, you write in the book as well about the choice you made, and you make clear that it was a choice to identify, identify more with your black heritage than your yeah. white heritage. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little about, about how you came to this choice? Yeah, I think, I think it's all about your personal experience, right? What a lot of people, again, if you're not Caribbean, you won't know this, but in, in Jamaica, someone like me is privileged, without a shadow of a doubt. I'm assumed to be wealthy, I'm assumed to be educated. 
we have, so one of the ways the, the system of color coding worked in Jamaica was really not, not, almost up until independence, it was illegal for a fully black person to own over 99 lots of land. So the richest black man in, in Jamaica was a man who owned a thing called Devon House. So you can still go to Kingston, it's still there. The whole architecture of Kingston is built in a particular way because Lady Musgrave, one of the top British people at the time, didn't want to have to drive past the, the rich black man's house. So she, she built the road and, and screwed up Kingston's traffic till today. The, the, the point I'm making is, those of us who are my complexion in Jamaica were permitted to get education, were permitted to own a certain amount of land, were, were permitted to rise up the social hierarchy. So if you go to Jamaica today, if you go to the upper class neighborhood, a place called Cherry Gardens or Norbrook, you'll immediately notice that most of the people are Chinese, Indian, Lebanese, Syrian, or of lighter skin. It's, it's changing a lot now, actually, as, as a black middle class um, is, is, is increasing in Jamaica. But certainly that's only been something over the last two generations. And so... Um, my point was, I suppose, that um, my, had I grown up in Jamaica, I would have been racialized quite differently. I would have been what they call high color in Jamaica. And my entire experience of life would have been quite different. To, to give one last example of how extreme the sort of light skin privilege is in Jamaica, two boys I grew up with, and I'm not dry snitching on anyone, they've gone to prison now. But um, they went on the run to Jamaica, right? These are big time drug dealers from my neighborhood. They shot someone, went on the run to Jamaica. Now imagine they've gone on the run. Imagine being able to shoot someone, traffic heroin, and go somewhere and basically be assumed to be posh and educated, not that posh and educated people don't traffic drugs, but you know what I mean? The assumption that comes with being light-skinned in Jamaica is, 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 is similar to being posh in, in, in England. Um, whereas growing up here, of course, that is not the, the perception. Mixed-race kids are included in the black-on-black -black violence statistics because, of course, their black half must be what causes the violence. Um, the... the, the, the you're racialized as black. And my mum understood that, I understood that. So it wasn't I denied an either side of my heritage, it was that I understood the police searched me when I was 12 for a reason. They didn't search any of the white kids in my class, even though I lived in an area where crime was being committed by everyone. Um, because there is a perception of blackness in this society. So that, that for me, it was, it, there was no way to run from that. I've got another friend who's mixed who grew up in Nigeria. Again, his experience was quite different. Mm -hmm. um, so depending where you grow up and depending how the uh, racial boundaries of that society are, are set. White is kind of white everywhere almost, but there, there's boundaries with that we talk about even in the book. And black is kind of black everywhere. But if you're in the middle, you make a decision, I suppose, based on your, on, on your experiences. And I, I very much, because I went to Pan-African Saturday School, because I had a sort of really strong black radical culture, my stepdad was the stage manager of the Hackney Empire Theatre, which was the leading African-Caribbean African theatre at the time. I had a real coherent sense of my Caribbean identity. And ironically, I think being living in London, so my, the English side of the family, so my mum is half Scottish, half English, and I'm not saying this just to placate you because I'm in Scotland. Um, but the Scottish side of the family are actually pretty cool. In fact, we kind of got the sense that they disliked my English granddad more than they disliked anyone, <laughs> anyone brown, right? Um, and, and, and so, like, so for example, my uncle Kenny, who's you know, my, my Highland uncle, he's from the Hebrides from Bembecula. When I first met him, he brought me a list of all the typical Scottish thing to do. Brought me a list of all the things Scottish people have invented. You know, <laughs> penicillin, the rain mac, all this stuff, right? Because he wanted me to be proud of my roots. Um, and so maybe if I'd have spent more time with that, that side of the family, I'd have probably had a bit more of an even kilter. But they lived in the Our Hebrides, so I only went to see them once. Whereas my Jamaican grand lived five minutes up the street, and so I, I had a very Caribbean um, upbringing. And you had a really great role model, your uncle. Uncle Offs, yeah. talk a little bit about him? So, so Uncle Offs is one of these people, right, who you take... I, didn't, I wouldn't say I took him for granted when I was a child, but it's only now I'm an adult I realise the sacrifice he made. So he was my mum and dad's 
best friend, basically. And he was also my, my godfather. Um, but when my mum moved to London, he also moved to London. He had a family of his own. He basically played a greater role in, in my life than, to be honest, most dads play in their, in their kids' life. And I don't mean that to disrespect dads. I mean, you know, like he was properly that guy until I was about 10. And then my mum got very, very sick. And he, by then, had you know, two children of his own. And being the man he is, he did the right thing and looked after his own children. But when my mum got very sick, he actually signed the papers to say, you know what, if, if you die, which she was supposed to, she didn't, luckily, I'll take the kids. And this is a working-class guy living on a council estate in Hackney with three kids of his own. And he still fought enough of my family and of my mum and his, his friendship with, with us and his love for us that he would take on three of someone else's children. So only now I'm an adult. Thanks for that. Um, it's only now I'm an adult, and I think, would I do that for any of my friends? Probably not. Um, I really realized what level of sacrifice someone like him was willing to make, and he is a lot of the reason why I was so into education, you know, because, you know, big, strong guy. You want to be like him. He's very handsome, you know. But he was, you know, he was used to tell me, oh, you're smart enough to do quantum physics. I didn't know what quantum physics was. But, um, but the point is, I kind of had that positive reinforcement for education very, very early, and that did make a, a, re a really big difference. And your Pan-African Saturday School as well seems to have um, been a big influence on your sort of radical understanding of the world. Yeah, well, I think what a lot of people don't know, um, or at least people in England don't know, there's a, there's a perception of Jamaican culture and heritage that is actually quite specific to Britain. Um, this kind of negative... I mean, Jamaican gangsters exist, let's be clear. The country is in the top ten in the world for murder rates. I'm not saying there's no problems in, 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 in Jamaican society, but this sort of simplistic rendering of a sort of yardified, you know, when I was growing up in the 90s, that's what it was, kind of Jamaican culture that isn't, in, or, or as David Starkey put it, militates against education. Um, unqualified. Um, but interestingly... In America, for example, the exact opposite argument is made. So if you look at black American conservatives like Thomas Sowell and people like that, they frequently argue that the academic and occupational success of Caribbean immigrants to America proves that the problem is black American culture, not racism. So it's ironic that Caribbeans in America, I mean, Jamaicans in 1920s and 30s America used to be called Jew-Macans, yeah, because they were seen as, that was one of the slurs against them, because they were seen as proficient in business. Basically, they were seen, to put it blandly, how often Indian people are sort of seen here, yeah? we simplistically sort of take the success of a particular set of Gujarati Indians and we say Asians are successful. Even black people do that. I'm like, well, no, actually, when you look a little closer, Asians, broadly speaking, are not. A very particular set of people are successful. Um, but anyway, one of the things I'm writing at the moment, which, is, which relates to this Pan-African Saturday School, is a paper comparing the academic outcomes of Jamaican kids in Jamaica with their third and fourth generation English cousins. Because if Jamaican culture was the problem, then Jamaican kids in Jamaica would be doing much worse than Jamaican kids in Britain. The average wage on the island is two to 3,000 US dollars a year. The country's in the top 10 in the world for murder rate. Even the best schools in Jamaica do not have the facilities of an average British state school. Yet, what do you know? The 30th ranked school in Jamaica, still over 75% of the kids get 5A to C GCSEs, including maths and English. And their GCSE is based on our old O level. So it's actually a harder GCSE. Um, and, and, and so it's hard to explain how children in a country with that much poverty and that much violence could do well in school if their culture was anti-education. And, and obviously, I, I teach in Jamaica quite a bit. So I was lucky enough, the point I make about Pan-African Saturday School, I was lucky enough to be the inheritor of a very specifically Caribbean militant. Caribbeans came here with the same upwardly mobile aspirations that you know, migrate 5,000 miles across the world to say, I don't want my kids to do well in school. Um, and so they're sort of the, the, the stereotypes that we now would associate with people from Asia or maybe even West Africa. 
The first generation of Caribbeans came here with those same ideas and aspirations. But now that we've been here longer, we've become part of the English working class. Um, but I was one of the lucky ones that, so for those who don't know, last point I'll make on it. During that period of time, 60s, 70s and 80s, Caribbean migrants to Britain, who often in, were part of the aspiring sort of bourgeoisie back in the Caribbean, were set up special Saturday schools to educate their children. There were about 150 of them at the peak. The one I went to was called the Winnie Mandela School. And, and so it meant I went to school on a Saturday when the rest of the kids were not. I had extra help with my homework. I had learned about episodes of black history other kids didn't learn about. And so it meant that I had a real positive uh, cultural reinforcement. Again, it made a huge difference. All of the kids that I went to Pan-African Saturday School with were not the kids that ended up dropping out of school, were not the kids that ended up in a particular set of problems. So that culture very much insulated people. Um, you've touched a, kind of a little bit on this. Um, <clears throat> you write really powerfully in the book about how class issues are often racialized mm -hmm. um, to justify unnecessarily harsh treatment of black communities. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking specifically of your conversation about knife crime mm -hmm. uh, in Glasgow versus mm -hmm. London. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, so for example, it, it, it's routinely argued that what we have this thing called black-on-black -black violence in London to the point that even black Londoners believe it. And when I say to them, okay, so explain what exactly that means. If what's happening in London is black-on-black -black violence, the inference is that the blackness is the cause of the crime. So if blackness is the cause of the crime, there are a few things we would expect to see. One, we would expect a significant portion of black people to be involved in, in violent crime. Two, we would expect the crime among black people to be evenly spread across all demographics, i.e., Middle-aged black grandmothers who are just as black as black teenage boys would also be stabbing people. Yeah? University students would be just as likely as, as people... Right. Um, and we would expect violent crime to be absent from all other communities if, if the blackness is the cause of the crime. London last year had the eighth highest murder rate in Britain. Even after decades of reduction, the murder rate was higher in Glasgow than it was in London. Uh, there are 1.17 million black people in London in a terrible year. Maybe 50 of them will kill somebody. Is that a higher murder rate than the general population? Absolutely. Is there a problem? Absolutely. Is the problem caused by defective genetics? Is it caused by excessive melanin syndrome? No. And, and as, I keep, as, I keep, as I keep pointing out to people, um, those of us who are half white are included. So black people have to take responsibility for, for us killing people. Even if we're half Scottish, where knife crime has been a problem for a very long time. Um, so so the, the point is, when you look at this violence, and the, I, I cite police, the police's own reports in the book, the police are not stupid, they understand what's going on. Boys aged 15 to 25 who've been expelled from school, who come from the poorest families, from the poorest areas, who often have a history of abuse in the family, they're killing people. A black male university graduate who's studied architecture probably has a crime profile more similar to a middle-aged woman than to the black boys he grew up with. Like, the, the idea that you're going to leave university and say, you know what, would complete this degree? <laughs> I'm black, so it's my obligation to shoot someone. Um, and so what, what's happening is really a, a, crime that is, a problem that is a national problem and has been a national problem for, for, for centuries, really. For, you know, there's gangs in Glasgow that are 200 years old. Um, a national problem is being in London... Uh, we're given, being given the impression that these people are foreigners and they brought this problem with them from elsewhere. So London will be compared to New York. So when they compare London to New York in the press, there's a reason they're comparing London to New York and not Greater Manchester, which actually had the highest murder rate in Britain last year, or Glasgow or elsewhere. There's this sense that London is this foreign city. Um, and, and my point is I have a lot of skin in the game in this. The two people I love most in the world are teenage black boys. 
Earlier this year, my, my best friend's son was stabbed 10 times. No reason. Complete wrong place, wrong time. On paper, he's the archetypal middle-class kid. His parents are together. They live in the suburbs in Sudbury. He's on his way to uni. Where does he fit in in the narrative? What's happening is black boys like him are not allowed to be victims. He's just on his way home from school, one, well, university one day. He's in the wrong neighborhood. People assume he's one of the gang members. He runs away from them, tries to explain to them, yo, I'm not part of you lot's nonsense. I'm a good boy. I'm not even trying to be a tough guy. They stab him 10 times anyway. Um, and, and so what's happening is the, un, the black underclass, essentially, is being used as both an ideological and literal weapon against the other 99% of black people who are not going to kill anyone. And, and what this means is, even in policing terms, the resources are being spread. Um, uh, 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 the last time I got pulled over as a suspected gang member was six months ago. And I said to the officers, I'm not even the right bloody age. <laughs> you know? if, if I went to try and join a gang, even the gang members would be like, fam, you're, you're past your sell-by date. <laughs> um, so, so, so if, uh, this last point I'll make on it, if, for example, the police in London said, we're going to concentrate, stop and search, on young boys and men aged between 15 and 25 in high gang crime neighborhoods who've been expelled from school and or who've already got criminal records. Few people could argue with the logic. Whereas when you say we're just going to stop and search random black guys, this is how you get George the Poet, who's the youngest member of the Arts Council, getting strip searched by the police, or you get Daniel Kaluuya, who's an Oscar-winning actor, getting dragged off a bus and strip searched. It's just absurd. Like he's going to say, well, you know, I, 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 I'm nominated for an Oscar, but I should stab someone in, in, in the intervening period. Um, and so... The point is blackness is a class signifier. Mm -hmm. So if you just say black, the assumption is lower class. Plenty of black Londoners are actually doing quite well now, which is something you think we would be celebrating. Um, so, for example, children of West African heritage actually are doing much better in school than black English kids and white working class kids. Interestingly, thousands of West African kids doing better in school is not blamed on black culture, but 21 kids stabbing someone is black culture. And so it's also looking at what is and isn't pinned on cultural values. The four youngest kids ever to take GCSEs in Britain are British Nigerian kids. Is, was that a, I would argue. In fact, I, I'm, I'm invited on Sunday. I can't go. But I'm invited to a federation of Nigerian schools on Sunday. Odd that Nigerians have come here and set up separate schools to do extra work on the weekends for their children. It's almost like they value education or something. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, when the problem isn't racialized as a black problem, the um, treatment is different. So you write about how they treat knife crime in Glasgow as a public health issue. That's only recent. Let's be clear. No one is suggesting that the people who run this country, either of the countries, really give a shit about working class white boys. That's not my argument. In fact, part of the reason that black-on-black violence is convenient is because you can just ignore poor white kids. If, you, if it's a black problem, you can just ignore Sunderland or Middlesbrough or, or Cleveland or Crocksteff in Liverpool, all of these other poor neighbourhoods where white boys have been killing each other since time immemorial. So it's actually a way of just completely ignoring working-class white people saying, we can't see you. So I'm not suggesting that there is a compassion for poor white kids, or schemies, as they are often called, um, up here. You, you guys will know that. Um, it's, it's only recently, to my understanding, that a compassionate approach has been taken in Glasgow, and that approach has been successful. The woman who ran it, whose name escapes me, but I believe is Karen McCluskey, but don't quote me on that. That's just off memory. Um, and, you know, she's been saying, listen, I've been coming to London trying to say to these guys, look what we've done in Glasgow, and no one's interested. So if people are not interested in taking an approach that was relatively successful, at least, in what was the most violent city in Western Europe, there's a reason they're not interested. And, and so what often happens is laws that, uh, unjust laws that are sort of perfected on the racial scapegoat are applied to everybody else. So we used to have a law, it's, it's recently been overturned, but called joint enterprise law. Does anyone know about that? No? So like one kid will stab someone and 20 kids go to jail for murder. Like, no, you don't go to jail for not snitching. You're not going to jail for accessory to murder. You're going to jail as if you killed the person. 
um, and, and, and laws like that, and, uh, or IPP, where you, you get a tariff, you go to prison, you get a two-year tariff, and you're not doing 10 years because no one's told you how long you're going to jail. And when you start to see that 20% of our prisoners are now housed in private facilities, it starts to look really quite, quite sinister. Mm-hmm. And a last point I'll make on the violence, you know, as bad as things are in London, London is no more violent than Berlin, it's no more violent than Naples. In fact, it's less violent than quite a lot of other major European cities. So that doesn't mean we don't have a problem, but anyone giving you the impression that we're basically having a civil war in London, the entire country of Scotland had a murder rate almost equivalent to London last year. If you take Scotland as a country, there were 56 murders, there's nearly 6 million people. London, there are 116 murders, there's nearly 10 million people. So this idea that we have this massive crisis, and it's hard to even try, ironically, black Londoners' affinity for one another, in a way, is now feeding the narrative. I'll give you one last example on this. I was talking to a middle-aged Nigerian auntie. All three of her kids are at university. She said to me, but our kids are killing each other. I said, are they? Your three kids are at university. They haven't killed anyone. And and the irony is that she identifies, racism in a way makes even right-wing black people identify with underclass black people in a way that middle-class white people don't have to. She's middle-class. Her three kids are at uni. She's a doctor. Her husband's, I I can't remember what her husband does. But she sees underclass black children as her children. So when she says our kids are killing each other, she's talking about a specific set of black kids, yet she sees them as their responsibility. So there is a wider narrative that needs to be, a discussion that needs to be had that is a national discussion that doesn't preclude anyone from taking responsibility. None of this is saying, of course, people have the right to kill anyone else's children. But if there are common predictors uh, that enable us to say which demographic is this type of behavior going to come from, and we all know that. Why are we not allocating the resources where they need to go? And why are we not pushing the narrative where we need to go? If we're actually concerned with, with saving lives? That's my question on that. Um, let, uh, <laughs> to follow on from that, let's get into the deep cuts. Um, I've heard you say that the British government had to try to achieve the outcomes of apartheid without the system of apartheid in place. Can you explain what you mean by that and expand on it for yeah, us? Yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't quite say... So the British Empire was happy to export apartheid to the colonies. So as I mentioned, even in Jamaica, 90% black African country of black African origin, there were laws that prevented black people explicitly from rising up the social hierarchy. Similar laws in India, similar laws in virtually every British colony that was where there were non-white people. So, But... Domestic Britain was presented with a, with a problem because one of the things the British Empire did was expel Britain's domestic class conflict. So the, the great, to use that term in the sense of meaning impactful, not nice, uh, British imperialist Cecil Rhodes puts, puts it like that. He says, you know, if you wish to avoid civil war, you must become an imperialist. And so it was very conscious that they, by expelling populations to Australia or to New Zealand or to Canada or elsewhere, they were avoiding domestic troubles. Um, one of the things that happened after World War II was Britain, for the first time ever, did not have I- enough domestic population to, to satisfy the needs of its labour. It, it, us becoming a multi-ethnic country was not a result of the British Empire, it was a result of World War II. In all the hundreds of years Britain ruled the Caribbean, there was no dream that they would invite black people here in any significant numbers. Even, even, even black World War I veterans were not invited to come and live here. Um, so World War II created this, this crisis. What the British state did after World War II was, was a couple of things. And so it's ironic we talk about mass migration after World War II, when what actually happened was a state-sponsored racialized population swap. So the British government, on the one hand, many, many of you will know this because many of your family members probably went to Canada or to New Zealand or elsewhere, but the British government sponsored 
state-sponsored migration from Britain to the colonies. More people went from Britain in the post-war years to the colonies than all of the Caribbeans and Indians that have come to Britain ever. 1.5 million people. At the same time, they subsidized, every post-war government subsidized uh, Europeans to come here. And this was explicitly done because they wanted to maintain the racial balance of the country. This is why I mention it in this context. So they subsidized post-war Europeans to come here, including German and Italian prisoners of war. What was interesting is, a lot of the, the British ruling class's racism was blamed on the public. So if you talk to most people about the 1962 uh, Commonwealth Immigration Act, the government said, oh, the, pu the public were just too racist, we, just, we had to pass these laws. But when you look at what they actually said privately at the time, there's a lot of good scholarship on it now that the archive's available, the reason it took them 14 years to pass that legislation, so the 1948 British Nationality Act makes the entire British Commonwealth legal citizens of Britain. It's not until 1962 that that's undone. The reason that that 14-year gap w went by was because the government basically perceived the public to not be racist enough yet. So that, that's basically what they said privately. They were like, ah, actually, we've just all fought a war against the Nazis, basically. We can hardly say the brown people who just fought with us can't really be citizens. And they felt that the public wouldn't swallow it, actually. So it's ironic that they've now turned around and said, the public was so racist we had to do it. I'll give you an example. There was a negative reaction against Polish people that came here after World War II. A lot of the British public perceived them to be fascists, so they negatively reacted to them. The British state decided to take out a literal PR campaign on behalf of the Polish called What the Polish Did For You, which is fine to integrate them. Now, can you imagine if a similar campaign had been taken out on behalf of Caribbeans and Asians, how differently the last 80 years might have gone by? If we actually listed, what was, what's the Caribbean in India done for Britain? Um, but they, didn't, they consciously did not do that. Benefits were given to people who came from Europe, basically non-citizens, were turned into citizens, and citizens were turned into immigrants based on race. So the final example I'll give of this, which kind of illustrates the absurdity, is you know, people whose grandparents came from Poland will tell me to go back where I came from or call me an immigrant. My maternal ancestors are the closest thing this, this island has to an indigenous population. And my dad's family came from an island that was in a legal union with England before Scotland was in a legal union with England. <laughs> yeah, Jamaica became part of a union with England in 1655. <laughs> and when British nationality was first casted, Jamaicans were British. Um, and so this idea that we were foreigners that suddenly appeared out of nowhere, particularly for Caribbeans, even more so than the people that came from Asia or West Africa, and I don't see that to put them down in any way, I say it because culturally the Caribbeans were more English than Scottish people were. Like they only spoke English, they were all Christian, they were educated in an English system, they had a parliamentary democracy, they didn't have a separate language, like Gaelic or whatever else. So actually, and if you talk to the average Scot and you confuse them for an Englishman, they wouldn't be that happy. If you talk to the average Jamaican in 1945, they'd be like, of course I'm English. So the only real difference was, 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 was the skin colour. Um, and so that's what I mean by consciously, privately, the, 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 the state was saying to itself, we can't have apartheid in Britain because it makes Britain look bad and we're not a country that does apartheid domestically. How do we achieve some of those outcomes without having explicitly racialized laws? And they said this, so last, very last point I'll give on this. When the 1962 British Nationality, Nationality Act was passed, the Home Secretary at the time, Rab Butler said, it's almost a direct quote, he said, its great merit was that it, it, um, it could be presented as non-discriminatory, but its restrictive intent is intended to and would indeed apply to colored people almost exclusively. So they're very conscious that what they were telling the public was bullshit. And that, and that privately that's what they wanted to do, was, was maintain this sort of idea that, of an unchanged ethno-nationalist polity. That was an incredible answer. <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> um, uh, one of the things I like about you, Akala, and one of the things I love so much about the book is that 
you're unapologetic in telling us this. Um, Noam Chomsky famously told Andrew Marr uh, on TV I've seen that, that, interview. He that, took him the, to toast. that journalists um, don't have to self-censor. They simply don't get a platform to speak unless they're saying the right thing. Mm -hmm. And you seem to buck that trend. We've mm -hmm. all seen you on Newsnight and shows like mm -hmm. this. Um, do you have to temper your voice or your message to get on these shows? No, I think, what's, I think what has changed is the internet. I'll give you an example. I was thinking about this earlier. There's a film called Injustice. It's a film about black deaths in police custody in Britain. When that film was made, the police threatened the director and they threatened the cinemas that were willing to show the film. This was in the 90s. There was no internet back then. I know the film director personally. Um, now you have the internet. The police can't do anything about it. It's on Vimeo. And so what's happened is in general, things that you would never... When I used to say to white people, you know, even people I grew up with, the police sometimes kill people. They were like, don't be so ridiculous. I was like, what do you mean don't be ridiculous? A, boy's, a boy I grew up with, they killed his grandmother. That's what set off the 1985 Broadwater Farm riots. Now you can imagine, if people kill your grandmother, you might not trust the police. Or let me rephrase that before I get sued. She died suspiciously in police custody. Um, a, a, a week later, Sherry Gross, another elderly Caribbean woman, was shot in the back and paralyzed. One week apart, that's what set off the Brixton riots. So this deep distrust, one of the reasons you know it's not just black people being crazy, you go to Jamaica, and even though the Jamaican police are pretty corrupt sometimes, black people in Jamaica have got no issue with the police. They don't see the police the way we do. Gangsters in Jamaica see the police the way we do. But if you talk to an ordinary Jamaican, they're like, yeah, we hate the police, but we hate the gangsters more. Kind of thing. It's, it's, so there isn't the same level of contempt for, the, for, for, for policing because there isn't this idea that you must be a criminal because you're black. There is this idea in Jamaica that you must be a criminal because you're poor and you come from the ghetto. That's true. But you can change that. You can't change being black. Um, in terms of going on TV and, and censoring myself, I think because of the internet and because of being an independent artist and because of the way things are changing, I think in general you see more people it, it, saying stuff that they just... I mean, when I grew up, you wouldn't even have heard a Scottish accent on the BBC. You wouldn't even just start basic stuff like that. Like you had to speak cut glass Queen's English to get on the BBC. So, so lots of things are changing very, very quickly about, about this society and lots of people find that uncomfortable. I think it's great that we have more voices and a greater range of voices. That's what democracy is supposed to be about. Um, you know, sometimes people that I don't like get to talk very, very loudly. But that's life. You, you pay a price for that. But no, I don't, I don't feel like... I can't say I've never tempered myself because there has been occasions... I hope no one minds if I swear. But there have been occasions where... So, for example, when I was on... Um, I was on a program with Michael Gove and Ed Balls, and I really just wanted to tell them to fuck off. Because they, they, they were being so patronizing. Um, but if you watch the program back, it's on YouTube, you can see in my face, I'm just going... Like, because I, when people are rude to you beyond a certain point, the way I grew up, you know, we're like, fam, don't talk to me like, we'll go outside. Like, that's, that's the traditional working class response to beyond a certain level of rudeness. And so that is the one thing that's hard, when people kind of patronize you and talk down to you, and you're like, you wouldn't talk to me like this off camera. So why are you doing it now? I wasn't rude to you. Let's have an adult's debate. But no, I, I feel lots of people, young people say to me, fam, are they going to kill you? Yeah, young people really do, do get, young black people in particular, like, fam, if you keep going on TV and saying stuff like that, because there's this belief that people who speak out are always going to be you know, assassinated. I personally don't think that much of myself that I think the British government gives a, gives a damn and going to poison my water or something. No, but... Um, I do understand young people's paranoia also, because there is a history of states killing people they disagree with. Um, um, but I do think we live at a really unique and interesting time, as much as it feels like a hard time. And I don't think we can afford to sort of rest on our laurels and assume 
that the very hard-won, very basic democratic freedoms that have taken centuries to secure are in any way definite. They can easily be eroded, and, and, and things that you think, oh, that could never happen here, yes it can. And so I, I feel like we, I, I, one of the things I get really offended by is when people say to me, you hate Britain. And, and I'm just like, what? You think I'd waste this much time criticizing something I hate? Are you joking? And, and one of the other things it shows is how little people know, particularly about Jamaican music. I mean, Jamaicans just expect you to cuss the government. It's, it's just part of what you do if you're a Jamaican artist. And ironically, even though it's a poor and undeveloped country, the Jamaican government doesn't kidnap artists or torture them. In fact, one of the weird things about Jamaica is in this sense, it's very, very democratic. The government will give you a visa to go around the world and make millions of pounds cussing the Jamaican government. Um, and that's one of the things we, it's one of Jamaica's greatest exports. Um, so so I, I've, I always grew up viewing artistic criticism uh, as, one, as a musician's job. It was only when I got older and people started to react negatively. I was like, I just thought that was musicians were men to do. I grew up listening to Dennis Brown and Bob Marley and Peter Tosh. I just thought that was my job. Um, but there you go. Um, I think that's a good point to flip over to the audience because I could talk to you all day, but they might rip me apart. Um, we've got four roving mics with our roving people. So stick your hand right up in the air, please, because I feel like there's going to be a lot of you. Um, oh, God, the agony of choice. Um, let's start with this gentleman right here, if we can. Three mics, okay, sorry. Thank you very much. That was really great. No, really. Um, in the first chapter of your book, you speak about Thatcher and 1981. Uh, so in the light of that, and in the light of uh, ex-Home Secretary Theresa May trying to deport people from mm -hmm. Windrush, in the light of Kensington and Chelsea's mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Conservative Council's... Mm -hmm. yeah, I live in Kensington. Grenfell, yeah. in the light of ex-Foreign Secretary Johnson's uh, uh, racist remarks, have mm. the, has the Conservative Party really changed, and will it really change? Um, no and no would be the simple <laughs> answer to that. Um, but I think, I mean, I, I, I live in Labbrook Grove, and so that, if you were there in the, in the days afterwards, it is one of the strangest things I've ever seen. And it was one of the things there was a con I don't care what anyone tells me, there was a conscious decision high up in the British state to just retreat and just, just say, you know what, fuck them. Like, I mean, there were, in the nights after the fire, there were 3,000, conservatively, 3,000, mostly young men actually, out on the block down there. I'm talking from Brixton, from Peckham, from Shepherd's Bush, who do not get on with Labbrook Grove, from Harrow Road, who do not get on with Labbrook Grove. Like, it was a recipe for disaster on, on paper, obviously. But obviously no one came there with that vibe and that energy. There weren't even any police. There was that one policeman. It's like they left the one policeman on his own at the end of the road as a target by a cone. It's like they wanted there to be a riot. In fact, the first set of people to arrive on the scene, I wasn't, I wasn't there directly in the, in, in, um, on the night of the fire. I got there the morning afterwards. Like, I went to sleep that night. My friends were phoning me. Like, but they said the first people to arrive were riot police. But then once the riot police leave, the next few days, they just, they just left. The state just completely retreated. And I think it was a real lesson for working class people of, of something really quite sinister and quite, quite evil, to be honest with you, that you can actually live in the, one of the wealthiest boroughs in the whole world. A, a guy emailed me, and I don't mean this to disrespect Kazakhstan, by the way, right? A guy emailed me from Kazakhstan, and he said, we have sprinklers in our buildings in my shithole of a country. That's what he said. I'm not saying, Kazakh I'm not saying Kazakhstan's a shithole. I've never been there. The point is, he was like, this would be a disgrace if it happened in Kazakhstan. A and this can happen five minutes from Buckingham Palace. Um, and I think it, 
one of the interesting things for me is the outfall of Grenfell, similar to black on black violence in London. A lot of people seem to think because half the tower were Muslim, that if this was poor white people, there'd be some wonderful reaction from the state. And so you see people from other regions of the country, oh, they were illegal immigrants anyway. Don't worry, like, there's, cladding on, there's non-fireproof cladding on your buildings too, and don't think the government's going to take it off just because you're white. Um, and, and so there's this really weird thing where people's racial hatred blinds them from realizing, do you think the re reaction would have been every, any different, really, other than the extra racism and connecting them to London Bridge and everything else? Do you remember Hillsborough? Were those people remembered nicely? Um, and so I think there is this deep-seated, it's not just about them being poor, there is this kind of aristocratic contempt, almost like an ethnic hatred for, for people that are not of a certain class and of a certain cultural group um, that runs really, really deep in the Conservative Party. It isn't just about this, but, but it is obviously about that too. Um, that, that I just, I, I don't think is ever going anywhere. And I said that about Boris Johnson 10 years ago, so the stuff he's saying now is no surprise to me. You may remember, last point I'll make on him, you may remember when he laughed about the dead bodies in Libya. Do you remember that? And the audience was laughing. This is what's most important. So this is what people are saying privately. Publicly we're being told we intervene in Libya because we love Libyans so much we just want to save them from their evil dictator. Privately, people are laughing about, about this, this tragedy here. Um, and so no, I, I don't think that the, the, the DNA of that or at least a particular strain of the people in that party can change. Doesn't mean I think everyone that believes in small government and low taxes is an evil person. Political conservatism versus the British Conservative Party is maybe a slightly different conversation, but we haven't got time for that one here. <laughs> um, hands back up, please. Um, can we take the gentleman in the green shirt? Sh shall we pick three so that, it's, so that the mics can go? Good choice. Um, shall we go for this lady in the middle? Yeah, and then um, who's the third one? This one, she's a little bit further back there. Um, <laughs> we've got a lady. Oh, you've already got a mic, oh, so she's got knock one. yourself she's out. Right ahead. Mr. Green, go ahead. Hi there, Carla. So I'd like to jump into an ideological question. Yeah. I'd say I've been to Cuba recently. Yes. Like their setbacks and mm -hmm. other problems, they seem to approach racial mm -hmm. integration and socioeconomic class quite well, I think, seemingly. So my question to you would be, do you think there's any socialist ideas, given it's quite a taboo subject over here, or socialist policies that would actually progress Britain um, I think that's a good question, and I, I would say this, and I'm not saying this to cop out. I'm saying this because I genuinely feel like lots of people like to repeat trendy cliches that they're not really qualified to speak on. So this is an admission of lack of knowledge in a way. Even though I've, I've, you know, I've read Marx and Piketty and Thomas Sowell so, and Hajun Chang, I've read a decent amount of economics, but I'm not an expert. Um, I am emotionally a socialist in that I believe societies have a responsibility to look after their most vulnerable, to look after their most poor, and that they should be proud of that. How best, to, whether the mechanisms, the best mechanisms to achieve that are through a socialist state, I can't answer that. Um, what I will say about Cuba, I'm going for the first time in September, I write quite a bit about Cuba, but everything I know about Cuba, I know from a distance. I know either from relationship with Jamaica, I know from, so for those who don't know, Cuba has more doctors working abroad than all of the G8 countries combined. It has more doctors working abroad than Medicine Sans Frontieres, UNICEF and the British Red Cross combined. In countries like Liberia or Sierra Leone or Haiti where the countries can't afford the doctors, Cuba just sends them for free. Uh, they train Jamaican kids. In fact, they've got the largest foreign body of students studying medicine of any country in the world, 23,000 students, studying Cuba for free. I think one of the problems about socialism is that we can't have an adult conversation. So, so people in Britain can't even admit that Cuba achieved anything positive. We're talking, about, we're talking about a country that is the first country in the world to eliminate mother-to-child transmission of HIV. 
You'd think for that alone, we'd give them some fucking credit for something, right? Um, and, and, and so, the demonization of, of socialism has been so silly and so childish that we can't just say, actually, well, maybe this part can be learned from Cuba. Maybe we don't want to replicate that part. Um, and I think that's a lot of fear-mongering and a lot of lack of academic accountability of the mainstream press, but, but certainly a country that puts the needs of other people's citizens even before its own. The other thing Cuba did that often gets left out of the history books was they sent 37,000 of their own troops to fight apartheid South Africa while we were supporting and funding it. Um, and so again, it's, it's weird that Cuba doesn't get remembered for having at least some positive impact on global human rights. I'd think the fall of apartheid was some sort of achievement for, for global human rights. And I'd think saving lives in Liberia and Sierra Leone, they were the first responders in Pakistan when there was the earthquake in 2005, loads of other places, they'd at least get some credit for that. But I haven't been myself, um, so when I go, I will offer you an assessment based on seeing it there. But, but certainly I think the general principle that a society should have some pride about not wanting to have homeless people, about wanting everyone to have healthcare, about wanting everyone to have the basics of life, socialist ethics, if you like. I would think the self-proclaimed patriots of this country, they'd be the first in line for it. But they seem to be the people most eager to want to see British people starve. <laughs> um, we're going to go to the lady in purple. First of all, I'd like to say absolutely amazing talk. Thank you. No, big ups, thank you. Um, I grew up in East London. Yeah. Uh, my aunt's Indian. My uncle's family is from St. Lucia. So, and she's been a social youth worker for about 30 years. The stuff that she talks to me about, about knife crime and now more recently gun crime, um, do you think that the government or the authorities need to do a lot more, a lot quicker uh, so that the gun violence that is happening, mm -hmm. especially in East London, yeah. um, like five minutes from my house. Yeah. Um, do they need to do more to make sure that it doesn't become such an epidemic like it has been in the States? I think we need to be careful. The word epidemic, that gets used a lot in the press. There were 180 murders in London in 2005. There were 116 last year. Okay. So I'm not saying we don't have problems. But, but when, even this kind of stuff, when we start comparing, even to New York, New York is at its lowest murder rate ever, and there's still three times more murders in New York every year than there are in London. So, so it's, we just have to be really careful that we address, yes, there is a serious problem. And I say this as someone, kids I work with have been killed. So I'm not saying this as someone who has emotional distance, yeah? But we also have to say, well, hold on a minute. A city of nine million people having 120, 130 murders a year is terrible, but it's not an epidemic. And I think we, we just have to be very careful about, about the language because that, those kind of words are used to fuel, not solutions, but actually extra policing, putting more kids in jail, bit, bigger. So actually the negative outcomes, because guess what? This is going to shock everyone. If you have more people that grow up with parents in jail, you have more people that are likely to go to jail themselves. It's not rocket science. And Britain already has by far the largest prison population in the whole of Western Europe. Light years ahead of the French, light years ahead of the Germans. Um, why? Our murder rates are not massively higher than theirs. Our rape is not massively higher than it is in those countries. Serious, 71% of all our people in prison, I believe that's the number, I will check in my Howard Lee report, but I believe it's 71%, are in jail for non-violent offences. Our prison population has grown 82% in 30 years. So there are lots of similarities with what's going on in the US and a lot of this hyperbolic reporting is what fuels the idea that these are good solutions. I do think the state needs to do more, but it needs to do more, or at least we need to have some, I don't know, referendum or vote or say on what we think should be done. I've, there's two suggestions from working with young people that I thought 
could really work. One, it's not an original one, it's boarding schools. If you take the young people who are most at risk and you remove them from London or Glasgow or Liverpool or Sunderland, a couple of things happen. The other kids who think they're bad, but they're not really that bad, the, level up, the whole level of badness becomes lower. Because now the baddest kid in the neighborhood, he might hit you with a bat or something, but he won't stab you or shoot you, right? What's happening is kids get expelled. I saw this firsthand. The really, really bad kids. So the kid in my school, was, you know, he's dead now, unsurprisingly. He got expelled on the first day of secondary school. He threw a chair at the headmaster. He was, clearly had really, really massive problems. All the other boys that got expelled weren't really that bad. They were just silly. They now end up in the unit with him, in the pupil referral unit. And they now have to up their level of badness to cope with him. And this is what's happening up and down the country. Kids who have no business being expelled, they just talk too much. And I'm not even blaming the teachers. If you've got 35 kids and you're understaffed and you, 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 you know, you're stressed about rent and everything else, it is hard. Um, and so actually the solution is in education. I think the solution is in, in, in removing some of the young people from that environment because clearly they can't cope with it. And that frees up the others. And last point I'll make on this because I can see you looking at your watch. Um, <laughs> one of the other suggestions I suggested was based on the report I'm doing with Jamaica is a Commonwealth Educational Exchange Programme. Britain clearly can't cope or doesn't want to cope with a particular strain of young black kids. Fine. Give the, David Cameron's government was willing to build a 25 million pound prison in Jamaica. Give Jamaican schools a 25 million quid and send the kids back there for teenage years. Yeah. Um, so you talk a bit about China and the perception of China in your book. And I was wondering if you could talk, maybe just share your thoughts about how or what you think about China and Africa and the relationship that's kind of happening there with development? Great question. The, the, the short answer would be I don't know enough details to give you... I have suspicions, um, but I don't know enough details in Africa to give you an informed response. I've been in Jamaica a lot this year, so I can talk to you a bit more about Jamaica because you can imagine I asked every Jamaican I could speak to what they thought about China's role in, in Jamaica. And what I could glean was, whatever we think of the Chinese they are building infrastructure in Jamaica that Britain chose not to build in 300 years. This is just a simple fact of it. They, they've just cut the travel time to Montego Bay in half, which obviously what that does for the Jamaican economy and Jamaican business. Is there a worry? Should there be suspicion? Yes, of course. It's in a major international power. Jamaica's a small island. Um, however, what was interesting talking to most of the Jamaicans I spoke to, in fact, all of them, even the ones that had a problem with the Chinese relationship there, when I said, what is it the Chinese are doing that American capital or British capital or French capital is not doing? What are the specific negative things that the Chinese are doing? And no one could name anything. So their gripes with the Chinese were gripes with capitalism, not gripes with the Chinese. The problem is, and those of you who are Caribbean will know this, there is a sort of slight anti-Chinese um, bigotry in the Caribbean because they're the successful people it's okay to hate. You can't really hate white people, they have too much power in, in the Caribbean and we've sort of learned that if, if, when white people die, there's big consequences. So Jamaicans in Jamaica, they sort of still admire Europeans despite that history. And there is this suspicion of the Chinese, and that's not to say that there is not valid reasons to be concerned. I'm just saying the suspicion is a suspicion rooted in their Chineseness, not rooted in the actual behaviors. One other example I'll give you. There are several projects that the Chinese have proposed in Jamaica that the Jamaican people said no to, the Jamaican government had to say no to. The Jamaican government then said no to the Chinese. What was the Chinese response? Was it to send the CIA in? Was it to overthrow the Jamaican democracy? Was it to cut off aid to Jamaica? No. They said, okay, we proposed a business deal. You said no. Here's another one. So what I would put to people, and I can't, speak, I can't say that this is the case in Africa because the power dynamics may be completely different. In the case of Jamaica, if the Jamaican government does not negotiate in the best interest of the Jamaican people, whose fault is that? 
The Chinese government is negotiating in the best interest of its people. The reason why I say that, because if we've told them no for three or four things already, and they haven't murdered us or bombed us or overthrown, then clearly we can keep telling them no if we don't like something. My fear, genuine fear, is that some of the crooked politicians in Jamaica will embezzle some of the money coming from China and then say, hey, look, the evil Chinese did it. I genuinely fear that as a possibility also. So I think we have to be, this is a situation that we have to manage very, very carefully because there is an opportunity for the Caribbean, at least, to parlay a relationship with China slightly to its best interest. That does not mean China is on a charity project. That does not mean China does not have human rights abuses at home. That does not mean that China is there because they love Jamaican people. They're there to make money and do business. The question is, can Jamaica or other countries parlay their relationship with China to their benefit? If the question is no, then they should sever relationships with the Chinese. If the question is yes, the question is how do they do that? But I think we have to be very, very careful with the sort of yellow peril sort of vibe and the assumption that they will behave exactly the same as other major powers have behaved. It's not proven yet. And I'm, I'm not saying that I'm naive that they might, they might, they might also do that. But I'm just not, I don't think it's intelligent to approach that relationship as I see a lot of people doing with the assumption that it will be identical to relationships with other major powers in the region. Happy to be proved wrong, happy to learn more, but that was my assessment from talking to... I'll, last example I'll give you on this. I know I keep saying that. <laughs> when you go and see them building the roads in Jamaica, you see Chinese workers and black workers working next to each other in Jamaica. It's the first time in the history of the Caribbean anyone who wasn't black or Indian did manual labor. It's the truth. So it's a different attitude. The, you see the bosses are... There's a Jamaican boss, there's a Chinese boss. You see the workers, there's a Chinese worker and there's Jamaican workers. It doesn't mean it's perfect. It's in no means perfect, but no country develops perfectly. So I, I, just, I think I have a bit more of a nuanced view of the Chinese, probably just because I'm biased as well. Part of it, the relationship, Jamaica's particular relationship with Britain and America has been so negative that I just don't want to allow that baggage to allow me to approach a, a new country that way. But, but Jamaicans in Jamaica may see it quite differently. There's people on both sides. Lots of people are like, I'm making loads of money out of the Chinese, so it's wonderful. Lots of people are like, like Bounty Killer criticized them recently, they're taking over the country, all this kind of stuff. But foreigners own most of Jamaica anyway. So when we say the Chinese are taking over, who are they taking over from? They're not taking over from Jamaicans, because Jamaicans don't own the country. Um, so there were already foreigners owning. So what we're really complaining about is Chinese capital replacing American, Canadian, or British capital. But we never said the Americans were taking over, even though we pay 140% of our GDP to the IMF in some years. Anyway. No, I think we, have, we, have we got time for any more? Is that, is I'm, that, I'm afraid not. I didn't I'm think so. Not. Sorry about that. <laughs> I take too long to answer questions. <laughs> we'll just before, <laughs> just before everyone escapes, just before everyone escapes. Um, you can find Akala um, right next door in the signing tent, uh, where he will be signing copies of his book. Please give us a chance to get out before everyone... There we go. We'll push our way through the crowds. Um, thank you again to The Skinny for sponsoring this event tonight. Uh, thank you for all of you for being here and your amazing questions. Um, once more, thank you to the inevitable Akala. Thank you. Good luck. That More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.